Welcome everyone to another episode of WarPod, the podcast of the Center for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. My name is Amelie Teusen, and I'm an assistant professor at the Center and the Center's communications director. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Christoph Meyer, a professor at King's College London, our very own Chiara De Franco, associate professor and the director of research at the Center for War Studies, and Florian Otto from Control Risk in Frankfurt, Germany. These three are here today because they have written a book called Warning About War, Conflict, Persuasion, and Foreign Policy, published with Cambridge University Press. And this book won this year's Best Book Award of the International Studies Association. Congratulations to the three of you. Thank you, Amelie, also for uh, the introduction. This book builds on the work uh, that Christophe, Florian, and myself have done in the context of uh, a project uh, that started quite a while ago in 2008, King's College London. Uh, Christoph has been one of the very first recipients of a ERC starting grant. So we were all uh, part of a team working together, trying to tackle uh, the so-called warning response problem. This is basically uh, 10 years of work, not continuously, a bit in and off, but uh, it has been a long journey. The warning response gap um, is a, a very important puzzle in conflict studies, peace research, intelligence studies, basically presenting the issue that very often organizations, governments that are equipped with pretty sophisticated warning systems do not manage to uh, respond to warning in a, in a timely and effective uh, fashion. And this is normally explained in two ways, uh, either as a lack of uh, quality warnings, so uh, as a problem that lies within the warning systems themselves, or as a lack of political will. And this uh, kind of explanations have been a driver also of institutional uh, reforms, because somehow, uh, you know, you can observe that institutions like the UN, the EU, or governments like uh, the, the UK um, have been investing uh, quite a lot of resources in developing warning systems, most uh, frequently utilizing quantitative systems of measurements uh, and assessment of, um, you know, uh, for making predictions about conflict escalation. Uh, and on the other hand, there has been also work for improving and smoothing decision-making uh, procedures, right? So what we uh, have observed, though, is that, uh, you know, there's wisdom from intelligence studies, especially, that never really made it into that discussion of the warning response problem. Because we know from intelligence studies that, in a way, the logical warning is different from the one of conflict prevention. I mean, to have uh, a reliable, precise, specific warning, so what the orthodoxy considers as a good warning early, you know, in the development of a conflict, well, I mean, that, that, is, that is difficult, that is challenging. So on the one hand, to have uh, uh, conflict prevention early, you should have, you know, a lot of information about a conflict that can basically transmit policymakers a sense of urgency and need that at an early stage you cannot really have because the kind of warning indicators that are needed are normally warning indicators that would emerge later in the development of a conflict. What we came to, to realize 
is that the warning, uh, you know, response gap was never really tackled as an issue of policy making in a situation of uncertainty. And that the act of warning is not just a, you know, an issue of transferring information, it's an issue of persuasion. So we have basically reframed the, you know, warning itself as an attempt at um, by individuals or um, uh, institutions, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to persuade one or multiple uh, recipients. The basic thing would be to adjust their beliefs about the probability of conflict escalation, also their beliefs about the, uh, the consequences of, uh, of that conflict. And then the next step would be to change their attitudes towards those events, right? So to basically raise the, the relevance of that, of that conflict and its consequences in what they, uh, the recipient uh, perceives to be irrelevant. And then the ultimate thing might be, in certain circumstances, not necessarily always to take preventive or mitigating action. This way of uh, reframing that discussion has been the driving force of our project, which means that it has informed our methodology and it has uh, uh, led us to conduct several case studies uh, where we actually, you know, uh, have been able to challenge some of the um, beliefs (laughs) that were previously held uh, about cases like Rwanda, for example. We have identified a few factors that have an impact on uh, the degree of persuasiveness of different warnings. We have also distinguished uh, between what we call uh, inside-up warning. So it's basically warnings generated within an institution, a government. So they move from the bottom of the analyst level, let's say, up to the um, the decision-makers level, but also um, outside-in warnings. So these are produced by NGOs or media. And so in a way, uh, percolate from, you know, the, um, the outside world into an organization. What we have stressed in the book is that each single warning leaves, in a way, in a, in a very complex environment where policymakers receive different warnings from different sources. And of course, the consistency or the congruency between all these different messages also has an impact on how effective the warning will be. If you would put some more words on the uh, book sort of scientific contribution, academic contribution to the field of international relations, what is sort of the new theoretical knowledge that your book brings? Um, Christoph? Yeah, I think I think one of the central challenges for our project from the start, and then also for framing the argument, was um, who's the main audience we are talking to, because there are different audiences and different different debates that engaged with questions of warning or of um, the the warning response gap in different in different ways. I think one of the reasons why, in the end, the award panel liked our book is because it it did talk to these different disciplines and and highlight what was relevant. And I think there are perhaps three main audiences where we um, are making new original arguments or, or offer something that is that is new. I think the first one is the, the, the peace and conflict studies community that uh, Chiara already mentioned. I think there um, the main preoccupation was around um, uh, receptivity of decision makers um, to warnings, and they, they were really looking to analyze the failure of warnings in terms of um, the receptivity problem at, at the decision maker level and, and, and said, look, there's no problem with the quality of warning or the quantity. 
we've managed to show that there are other important factors that help to explain when warnings are successful and that there are indeed many um, shortcomings of warnings, that warnings, certainly those that are public, are often very vague and very, very specific. They are very hedged within bureaucracies. The career officials often think about what will happen if the warning doesn't come true or if it does come true. How can I um, cover my back um, for saying something that did not happen in the end? So I think we, we uh, shone a light on what does it take for warnings to be actually taken seriously? And I think our contribution is also to have a more nuanced measurement of what warning impact is, because in peace and conflict studies, the only thing that matters is effective preventive action, or at least that's how it often seems. Whereas we have made an argument that it is equally important to look at whether a warning has been received, whether it has been listened to, whether it has been prioritized, and whether it has been at least accepted in terms of its knowledge component. We've developed a more nuanced measurement of what warning about conflict, what makes it successful, but also um, developed a better understanding of the conditions under which warnings could have at least some impact. And therefore, I think we shifted a little bit the kind of focus away from, from a de degree of fatalism in peace and conflict studies that, you know, preventive action, conflict prevention is futile. It, it's, it's never listened to when it matters. And, and therefore, I think we gave a bit of a, a positive impetus to perhaps designing warning systems or processes more in a way that increases the chances for these warnings to be articulated and, and listened to. So I think there's there's that dimension. The second dimension, I think, intelligence studies is that intelligence studies was very preoccupied with accuracy and timeliness, but they had great difficulty in conceiving of warning as a process of persuasion. It, it almost goes against the professional ethos that an intelligence analyst should persuade a decision maker. What we are saying is that warnings are a bit of an exceptional case where Analysts are not just being asked a question, they are bringing something up out of their own initiative. And because of the stakes, perhaps they do have a responsibility for making sure that the decision maker really pays attention, that, that, that he or she accepts the knowledge claim that is part of the warning. Not necessarily to do what, is, what, what they're recommending, but at least that they have a responsibility for communicating the warning in a really persuasive way. So framing that as persuasion is very important. And the second contribution to intelligence studies is that intelligence studies has not really systematically examined the role of public discourse, the role of the media, the role of NGOs as very important factors to determine when is it that warnings are being taken seriously. Also, when is it that sometimes officials who are not successful go outside, go to the media, go to NGOs and kind of try to get their warning out if they are failing inside the bureaucracy. So I think these are two important contributions around um, intelligence studies. And, and lastly, I think the model we've developed, it is actually quite widely applicable if you think about it. It's widely applicable to foreign policy analysis. It kind of sits in between the literature on expert knowledge in public policy, disaster management, and uh, lobbying and advocacy kind of combines all these different factors. And I think the more I look at other cases, I see this model really working quite well in the wider area of analyzing these processes of advocacy and expert judgments in public policy with foreign policy as a kind of special case. The book has so many different things for different audiences. I hope the model itself as a kind of key component of it will be used and refined uh, and adapted by these different audiences, depending on what their main agenda of research is. In terms of your book's analysis and results, what are the main lessons that you can draw from your book for warners, for organizations engaging in conflict warning, conflict prevention? 
how can you use that model that you created and the the conclusions that you draw to improve the practice of warning uh, about war? Lorian. You know, I think it unpacks how complicated and also complex the process and the emphasis should be on process of warning is in practice. And in doing so, it actually points those interested in warning to, you know, some different approaches on how to engage. Unsurprisingly, the flip side is none of these approaches that may get you there is straightforward. But in the first place, a realistic understanding of the issues, the complexities involved, the dilemmas everyone in the process faces is the necessary starting point to get better at it. That just as, as a general observation. One really important point is we shouldn't assume that warnings are there. The book states very clearly that warnings are actually rarer, or warnings in the sense how we define it are rarer than um, one commonly thinks. And Chiara alluded to it, early warnings are particularly rare. I think that should give all stakeholders, particularly those who write about warnings and the failure of warning processes, pause in the first place and think about why is that the case, right? When I talk about the main lessons here, let's let's focus on these outside-in warners, NGO staff, officials of international organizations on the ground, journalists. And I think the first thing is to acknowledge how difficult producing a message that is a warning actually is. A lot of the messages we, we analyzed lacked strong, as we called it, message properties. They were vague. They lacked probabilistic language, or they didn't define what expressions of probability actually meant. Your idea of what the word likely means will differ from my idea of what the word likely means. So that already gets complicated. From a practitioner's perspective, we are asked by our clients to make judgments about what will happen in the future. It is hellishly difficult. And when you ask an analyst to be specific about what is supposed to happen, and if you drill down and if you, for example, say, don't use the word may, don't use the word could, it suddenly becomes a very different exercise. To establish yourself as a warner, right, to, to be an authoritative source, you actually need to make quite significant investments in terms of understanding methodologies. You need to put resources behind it and you just have to be tenacious. You have to stick at it. You're just not considered credible because you say something will happen. One of the, the findings of the book is that, you know, actually warners would benefit to warn earlier, but also to be much more specific about the conditions under which that judgment they just passed on will hold true to actually embrace the uncertainty that is out there and to be explicit, um, you know, why also certain things may change. Because I think one of the key challenges everyone encounters is we're not dealing with something from science here, but human interaction. The conflict parties, for example, they adjust and adapt. It's not that they don't take note of the discourses that happen there, right? So I think there is something to be said about how to warn well in terms of the message content. And that may point to actually educating or offering training to those who may not have warning as the first line in their job description, but who may ultimately become involved in warning processes. I think the other important lesson is that irrespective of how good your message is, it doesn't solve the question how you communicate that message effectively. And the most persuasive warnings we came across were communicated verbally, so often in a more informal setting, and they were what we called inside up. So relayed by officials who already were in the system, so to speak. 
it's critical to understand the way the warnings are communicated and by whom they are communicated matter a great deal ultimately for the message to get to the intended recipient. And credibility of the communicator plays a really important role here. It's the credibility in the eyes of the recipient. These outside-in warners, they, they should really think about how they can mobilize those to relay the message who have the ear of the decision makers that ultimately matter. In practice, that basically means you have to foster relationships um, with potentially advisors or, um, or officials who may hold really different worldviews from your own. I think it's just important to, to understand that you will encounter these ideological differences. As someone involved in warning, you, you will need an understanding how you deal with that. What we're not saying is that, you know, warners should cozy up to officials, but I think developing professional relationships and um, really, you know, understanding the role of individual people in such processes really matters here. One key lesson that the book brings across really well, and I think there we're actually taking warning as a persuasion process seriously, it's a people business. It's not a technocratic process where you devise a system and if the system generates the right knowledge, it will ultimately affect a certain change in policy. No, it depends on, um, on people engaging with each other. In practice, it means that warners really need to select the people they engage with carefully and their chances of ultimate success in the sense of getting their message heard. For us, warning success was that um, the intended recipients would ultimately say, okay, I understood that. What policy change that affects is a separate question. But in the sense of getting the message heard, the chances may be much higher when communicating through an intermediary or a group of intermediaries whose own credibility with policymakers may be higher than, than that of the, of the warner. And I think finally, and that is the most important point in terms of the lessons, it's understand your recipient. Warnings in most circumstances will compete with other issues for the attention of, of, of those you want to engage with. And what may be self-evident to you as the warner in terms of the importance of the issue, that, that, that doesn't actually matter. The key lesson here is accept that a warning is an act of persuasion and that this means that you will probably have to work hard to make your point to someone else. In terms of practical advice, we've come up with a list of questions warners should ask themselves. You know, when they are confronted with the issues, how do I get that message across? I won't go through all of them. Some may sound pretty self-evident, but we also found that they, they, they were rarely asked before. So who is the intended target of your persuasion effort? How am I likely to be perceived by this person in terms of the expertise and, and my credibility? What is the level of pre-existing knowledge and what kind of evidence do those who I want to reach trust? Also, what kind of consequences does this person care about? Because this will ultimately will affect the motivation to process the message that you're relaying. It's not easy, but I guess embracing the complexities of the process and, and also taking it seriously that that knowledge claim you want to relay will not be self-evidently true for your recipient and that actually making or reaching that person will require quite a lot of work. It's realistic advice grounded in the evidence of several case studies we conducted, and um, that will hopefully, you know, increase the, the chances of success in the future. Great advice to find here, I think, for uh, warners and people who uh, sort of maybe want to uh, to go and work in that in that type of business, either for international organizations or an NGO or something like that. So clearly, also relevant to our students, for example. Apropos case studies, I I was wondering whether I could ask you something uh, about that actually. 
I think one of the benefits of the case studies is the different cases involve diagnostic challenges that are different. There are different levels of disruption, discontinuity involved in these cases. And I think that is indeed one of the factors that can help to explain receptivity. So the Ukraine case that, that I was looking at, the, you know, the, the annexation of Crimea, that was diagnostically very, very difficult because it involved um, a major departure from previous norms about um, the um, territorial integrity of states, uh, about international treaties being broken. It involved a lot of secrecy and deception. So it's a bit different from uh, the kind of the bottom-up civil war mass atrocity scenario, although also in mass atrocities you may have secrecy and deception, but clearly this was a very directed, centrally planned deception. And, and surprise is clearly a big element of, of foreign policy and security studies anyway. Yet there were still some warners within the EU. However, you could see the credibility issue coming in there that people like Karl Bild from Sweden or Radek Sikorsky from Poland, they were not seen by their counterparts, by their, their other ministerial context as um, authoritative warners. Well, maybe authoritative, but, but biased. So the issue of credibility and kind of discounting of warnings, depending on the source they're coming from, is very, very important for, for understanding diversity of impact of warnings and why some warnings from some sources are accepted less easily than others. And I think the other very interesting um, case is the role of the media. I think uh, uh, Florian, who's, who's really worked on the Darfur case, has, has really had built up this very interesting contrasting case between Lukas Kapila on the one hand and Andrew Natsios on the other hand. So kind of two officials went different routes with their warning, had different levels of success. Lukas Kapila, unsuccessful inside but very successful outside with the media. Andrew Natsios, not very successful initially with the media, but then very good in using his contacts to, to warn the deputies meeting of uh, the US. So, so you see these different strategies that also hang together with how credible these different people are. Also, I think important element as well is, is risk-taking. As a warner, as an official, if you are ready to take professional risk with your reputation, that enhances your warning. So there's really a bit an element of career risk in warning for individuals. And I think it's important to take that into account both when it comes to outside exit, but particularly within organizations where, you know, your line manager decides on, you know, your next posting or your next career move. Maybe, maybe something that I can also add is that across all case studies, we noted something interesting, especially, you know, about how those cases had been studied before or, or evaluated within organizations. One of the reasons why very often, you know, warnings were believed to have failed was that, you know, there, there was basically a mismatch between the content of the, of the warning and what the expectation was in terms of outcome of the warning. When looking into warnings, well, first of all, we noted that, that very often things that, that were considered warnings were actually only warning indicators. There was no analysis attached to it. There was no sense of uh, um, relevance for the target of the warning attached to it. So, so this scattered you know, information given some, sometimes uh, orally, sometimes in, you know, within uh, written reports, sometimes bore it into written reports, you know, so that was not actually salient information in the report. And then, you know, afterwards uh, was used by analysts to say, ha, but we had warned you. We saw um, that this was recurrent across all cases. So in a way, I think 
also, uh, you know, conducting research these ways on the basis of multiple case studies also made us very confident about our conclusions and our findings, because there was really a, a general trend screaming out, you know, for being noted. Thank you so much for explaining a little bit more, more in depth. Um, I would like to move on and uh, talk a little bit about the prize, the International Studies Association's annual book prize that you won for your book. And uh, would just like to ask you what this prize really means for you. Maybe we can start with Florian. I've been really thinking about that question. And, and to me, it's probably more of a, um, it has more of a personal dimension because my, the way my career has developed um, is different from academia. And I think what it means is, I mean, in, in the first place, it's just great to, you know, that, that, that we all, um, and also I think we should add those who have supported this project, there were a lot of them, um, what we have achieved and that this is being recognized. And that research effort that in the first place spanned about four years in, in my case, and then I think in, in, in Christoph's and Chiara's case, <laughs> a, lot, a lot more, um, and all the effort that we put into it by also you know, trying to find a new way by external reviewers considered to be valuable and to have made a contribution. I mean, that, that is in itself, even with that long time that has passed, that, that is highly satisfying, right? That, that we have actually managed to, um, to, to contribute something original and hopefully that not only helps to contribute to several academic disciplines, but, but also to provide at least some input into how to make this better and it's obviously nice if you then also you know have this externally validated so to speak by an organization as prestigious as the isa it really you know made me think back about that time which um which is now almost a decade ago and um and in that sense from a personal perspective it has actually brought back a lot of um i have to say fond memories of um yeah, a particular time in my life, but also of, of a time where, where I um, had the privilege to be part of such a fantastic team. Chiara, Christoph, what about you? I think for me, it's an incredible confidence boost, uh, of course. I was just a postdoc when I started working with, with Christoph and, uh, and Florian and the other people involved. And uh, now I'm a PI of my own project. So, so of course, such an award, or we should say actually awards, because we actually also got the award from the um, book of the year of the international communication section of the ISA, which is the first award we got. I can confess that when we got the second one, I had to read the email quite a few times to understand that it was not the same <laughs> and that it was actually an even more prestigious award. So yes, so it makes me it makes me confident about my own abilities and the, you know and the fact that I can uh, produce research that can be meaningful for colleagues uh, and and also for the for the world outside, right? So uh, policy relevant uh, in a way. It makes me proud, of course, and it has been a bit like Florian was describing before, also for me, you know, it, it took me back to uh, a long time ago, my life in London, and it made me feel very nostalgic and also somehow, you know, very proud of all the things that have happened um, since, since then. Yes, what does the, the prize mean to me personally? Um, firstly, it means that probably more people will read the book, 
which is, I think, quite important because our book is so cutting across different communities. It is good to get that kind of visibility across these different communities and have that validation from ISA and the, the visibility that goes with it. I think it does mean that probably more people will, will now read the book or will be conscious of the argument we're making. And I think that's, that's very important. My first job was in journalism. You know, I, I want our work to be read. I wanted to make, uh, to make some sort of a difference. The second, and I think it goes a little bit with what Chiara has said, this is the first award I've won. So until then, you don't quite know <laughs> what does it take to win some sort of a book award or, or even, even a paper award. And I think in academia, we, we, we do sometimes suffer from this imposter syndrome. You never quite know, you know, how good am I or am I really deserving and all of that. I mean, I was really proud when we submitted the book. So when the book was finished, I, I thought, yeah, I'm happy with the work. I think it's a good piece of work. And that's also, I think, what made us decide to actually put it in for a couple of prizes. So I, I thought, okay, I'm really happy. Let's see what the outside world thinks. But when you do then get a prize, and, and the praise that goes with it. I think you can leave a little bit that imposter syndrome behind you. So that's a good thing. And at lastly, it made me think back to my interview for a lectureship at King's uh, 14 years ago when uh, Chris Dandecker, then head of school, asked me, if you're run over by a bus tomorrow, what, what is it that you will be remembered for? So now I, now, now I can answer that. <laughs> I was wondering whether you could, based on your experience with this book, give some recommendations for younger scholars on the process of writing an award-winning book. So what does it take? What have you learned? Clearly, it's not something we've set out to do, you know. We haven't set out, now we are going to write an award-winning book. Uh, I, think, I think what is important and what we always say is that, you know, you should try and, and be original, you know, try and, and follow what you find fascinating, what you find puzzling, and dare to question some of the maybe uh, conventional wisdom. So I think it's about, um, no, no, of course, not everyone can kind of come up with, with, with things that are very original and, and, and different. But equally, I think sometimes we are playing it too safe and, and kind of go for the incremental knowledge, you know, the kind of there's this theory and I can make that theory a little bit more nuanced and I can add a little. And that's fine. That's research as well. That's important. But sometimes, you know, it's important to follow a little bit your own curiosity and dare to do something that is um, maybe be questioning some of the conventional wisdom. And that's what I was really lucky to get uh, funding for with the ERC. I hadn't worked on warnings when I applied. It was quite an unusual thing. It was a bit outside my previous research. I was really fortunate to get that funding. But in the end, I think originality is rewarded. And then it's really a question of when you think you've done some good work, you know, put it in, do a bit of publicity and, and see how it works. I can add that, that, of course, there is no general law here right for how to get an award so i will stick to us uh, as uh, as an example maybe for others but more of an inspiration that than an example really because i think in our case the empirical strength of the book was clear i think to uh, the uh, award committee and i think that this uh, speaks in favor of teamwork something that is very normal in the in the natural sciences a bit less so in the social sciences and especially in IR, where it's individual, uh, you know, success that is normally uh, considered more prestigious. I see this as the result of teamwork, right? There have been so many people involved and there was another PhD working in the project, several research assistants. 
Christophe was a very skilled PI in a way because, I mean, he was very, very democratic. He made us all participate in the theoretical and methodological development of the project. He was not just di dictating a line, which means that he allowed us all to feel some kind of ownership in a project that ultimately was his, right? But, but then it became our project. And that also means that we all put an effort also in the publications and in this book in, in particular, right, that somehow also went beyond the life of the project, right? So I think it was teamwork that, that, that worked uh, thanks to the way the PI set up uh, that work. And I think also, you know, I, I mean, the general wisdom is or the general recommendation is don't sit with your manuscript, just submit, right? which is something that we did back in 2012 when uh, we submitted the, the book as soon as the project finished. But then it took us a while, right, after a pretty challenging revise and resubmit. Uh, it took us a while to go back to it. And in the meantime, I think we have all been thinking about the book and the, and the main argument and the case studies. And uh, Christoph developed a completely new case study. So there has been a lot of work that, that has been going on in these 10 years that made the book so exceptional. So in a way, I'm grateful that we had that kind of stop, you know, with that revise and resubmit that allowed us to, to go farther. For me, it is like also an encouragement to take a step back, try and resist the pressure to publish a lot and continuously and, uh, and rush things. If your ambition is to do something that is very innovative and so original to get an award afterwards, there may be a bit more time for reflection is, uh, is needed. That's great advice. We can all uh, learn something from that and try to yeah, think things through with ambition. Christoph? As I was listening to Kara, I just wanted to, I think, reinforce one point and add perhaps two, two more. I think to reinforce the point, I think persistence was really important. And I was happy with the book we submitted in the end in 2018, but it took a lot of extra effort, a lot of updating and not to cut corners and maybe kind of get it out with a different publisher, but, but really try to make it as good as possible, even though it's painful. And it was quite painful at times. And, and there were times when we were thinking what are we going to do with it? But I think in this case, certainly persistence paid off. I was happy and proud with our work, regardless of the price at the end. I, I was just thought, okay, if I had not done this, I would have felt really, really unhappy and guilty for the rest of my professional life. So I think being able to submit something that you are convinced of and proud of, I think is so important in academia. The second point, just in terms of strategy, I think it is important to aim high with regard to publishers. So I think having this published by Cambridge University Press, I'm sure, is something that matters for prize award committees. Also, having some really quite high profile endorsements from uh, colleagues from different areas is um, no doubt also something that gives maybe confidence to those who are reading the book or at least uh, predisposes them positively if they see that, you know, Robert Jervis or, or, or Christian Gledich or, or others have read the book and think it's great. That takes a bit of effort if you can get some colleagues to look at the book before it's published and write something nice about it. Loads of, uh, yeah, really gold nuggets, I think, in terms of advice here. All that's left for me to say is uh, thank you so much, Christoph, Chiara, Florian, for joining us today. It was fascinating to hear about your book and I uh, wish you all the best for your research endeavors and career endeavors in the future. It's certainly fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank, Thank you. you, Emily.